set the scene for this sermon this morning. This is the weirdest passage in the Bible I think we're going to come to today. And uh, she was absolutely right. She uh, told my secret. Uh, This is perhaps the wildest, the weirdest, and the most maligned chapter in the whole Bible. So that's an introduction to you. It's weird uh, in a lot of ways. In the first 35 verses of this chapter, 35 verses, there are 135 prophecies. 135 in 35 verses. So my notes on this chapter are about 35 pages because there's so much here. And interestingly, of these 135 prophecies, all of them have been fulfilled to the letter, every one of them. You know what the problem with that is? It's a huge problem. The huge problem is that Bible scholars, starting in the third century AD, not before that, they started to look at those prophecies from Daniel in light of history that they knew. And they said, every one of these has been fulfilled perfectly. And they could put the name and the date to every single one of them. So what was their decision? Obvious. This is not prophecy. This is history. So someone took Daniel's name, and way after Daniel was gone, they wrote this as if Daniel wrote it. But he didn't. Because the problem is, it's too accurate. Way too accurate. Now that has several problems. One has problems with us and our belief in the inspiration of God's word. But the more difficult problem they have who believe that is, in the second portion of this passage, it talks about things still in the future that have not been fulfilled yet. And we know they have not been fulfilled yet. So you can't have it both ways. It's a very strange passage of the Bible. Daniel writes with the precision of a historian about things that took place after his time, but he writes way in advance. And so I'm not going to go through all 135 prophecies. We'd be here all day, and you'd be terribly bored and very hungry. So we're going to skip that. But let me give you a bit of an outline of the passage. In the first part, through verse 35, Daniel, remember, he's writing this to the Jewish people, his people. Now, when he writes this, where are his people? Some of them are in exile like himself. He is in Persia, present-day Iran. So some of the Jewish people are in Iran. Some of the Jewish people have already gone back to Israel. And some of the Jewish people are scattered all over the place. So that's where the Jewish people are. So he writes to the Jewish people to prepare them for what is going to be one of the darkest chapters in their entire history. That dark chapter is going to take place around the year 170 BC when a leader whose name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes is going to rule from Syria and he is going to be so evil, so bad. He's going to do so many horrible, offensive things to the Jewish people that God chooses to warn them in advance what's going to happen so that they will do what? Stick their heads in the sand? Become horribly frightened? Capitulate to him? Guess what? That's what many of them did. 
But there's another alternative. When you see this thing happening, maybe you could fight. And that's what a group did. A group of people called the Maccabees. Started with a man named Matthias Maccabeus, who had, a, had five sons. And he and his sons carried out a guerrilla warfare against the Syrians, and they won. And when they did so, they undid the evil that Antiochus, Antiochus had done. They rededicated the temple and began the Jewish festival called Hanukkah. That's where it began. So God gives the first portion of this passage to warn his people in advance of what's going to come, and it's going to be really, really bad. Worse than the destruction of Jerusalem. Worse than the exile to Babylon. Because remember, when they went to Babylon, they had a pretty decent life. It's going to be worse. So God warns them in advance about the great evil they're going to face. And he gives them markers along the way so that they can see what's about to happen. But then, around verse 35, the chapter switches. Because now it's going to continue talking about a king, but this king is not like Antiochus. There's nothing historically that resembles what the latter portion of this passage speaks about. It talks about Antiochus as a, co- as a contemptible person. But the one it's going to introduce at the end is way worse than contemptible. He is going to think he's God. And so this portion is not yet fulfilled. The first part was to try to prepare the Jewish people for one of the worst things they're ever going to face in their history. They faced it. And they did a pretty good job. And then he's going to show them the worst thing they're ever going to face in their history. And thankfully, ultimately, they're going to do a really good job. Because as they see events taking place, not only do they know that what God's word said is true, they're going to realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And though persecution will be terrible, they'll lift up their heads because he's coming back again. So that's what this chapter is about. It's going to warn the people about two great catastrophes the Jewish people will face. One past and one in the future. Now, we're still living in that future. It hasn't happened yet, but we're going to see some of the markers of the end times. And that's what I called it here today. But before we go to the end times, we're going to begin with the first portion. The first portion is the 135 prophecies that were fulfilled. And this mainly talks about Various things that I'm going to just read it to you. And to give you some background, um, I'll try to help you. It's going to talk about the South, the kings of the South. The kings of the South are the Ptolemies in Egypt. But these are not Egyptians. These are Greeks. Because remember, around the year 330 BC, Alexander the Great swept over the whole world and took over everything. But he died as a young man in his 30s. He then parceled out. Well, it wasn't, he didn't parcel it out. A big fight took place, and eventually his kingdom was divided into four parts by his four generals. One of those generals, remember Greek, not Egyptian. He took over Egypt. That's called Ptolemy. That's the south. South of what? South of Israel. The other one is called north. That's Seleucus or the Seleucid kingdom. That's in Syria. But remember, they're Greeks. So the Greeks took over Syria. The Greeks took over Egypt. And guess what's stuck in the middle? The beautiful land, it's called. Or the holy land, Israel. 
Now, Israel was just a little tiny group of people. Egypt was a mighty empire. Syria was a mighty empire. So who gets all the problems? Whoever's stuck in the middle. That was Israel. Now, why would they be stuck in the middle? Who put them there? God did. Do you know why? Because that little strip of land where today you find the country of Israel is the most important strip of land in the world. By far. All of history. That's the most important strip of land in the world. Why? Because it's the crossroads of the world. Now we fly over it, but it's still the crossroads of the world. Thousands of years later. Why this little piece of sand? Well, because Europe, if you know your map, if if they wanted to trade with the great empire of Egypt, they had to go through Israel. And if Egypt wanted to trade with the great empires of the East, they had to go through Israel. Everyone has to go through Israel. So God planted his people at the crossroads of the world so they could be a light to the world. You see, God's plan has changed now. Now God has sent his lights all over the world, but then he concentrated his light in Israel and all the world went to that light so they could see what the real God looks like. What a kingdom of justice and righteousness and goodness looks like. But they weren't just. They weren't righteous. They weren't good. Apart from a few periods in their history, maybe under King David, under King Josiah, they were not good. So God sent them out of the promised land and he brought them back and he sent them out and he brings them back. But that little strip of land is extremely important. Though we fly over it today and we go around it in ships, it is still the theological center of the world. It is the political center of the world. It is the eschatological, the future center of the world is still that little strip of land. Anything that happens there is that's the whole history of the world, right in that little strip. And so now, in these first verses, you're going to find the south, that's the Ptolemies, that's Egypt, are going to fight against the north, that's the Seleucids, both Greeks fighting over this land in the middle, it's going to be called the beautiful land. So when you see the land or the people, it's going to be the Jewish people and the land of Israel. When you see like the people of the covenant, when the covenant is mentioned, that is the covenant that has to do with the people of Israel. So look for those little markers. And other than that, please don't be too befuddled as I read for you Daniel chapter 11. And I'm going to read through verse 35. Daniel 11, 1 to 35. It's, by the way, going to begin not with the Greeks. It's going to begin with the Persians. It begins with the Persians, and then it's, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks, and then the Greeks fought against each other for 150 years. That's where the focus is going to be. And then it's going to turn our attention to one of the kings of the north, that's the Seleucids, whose name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he is going to be the one who's the precursor to the Antichrist. He's the one who's going to do great evil, and you'll see that in the passage. So try to follow as I read. I'm going to start in verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia after Cyrus the Great. And then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. That's Xerxes and others and Artaxerxes who tried to go against the Greeks. They were very rich, and they took battle after battle against the Greeks, and the Greeks whooped them, and that was not happy for them. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do 
as he pleases. After he has appeared, his, that, that person who does who he pleases, that's Alexander the Great. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south, the Ptolemies, will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. And again, if we had the time, we can give names and dates to every single phrase I just read, easily. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north, the Seleucids, and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. So you have this constant battle between the Egyptians and the Syrians. And if you know your geography, again, Israel stuck in the middle. Verse 9. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So who's victorious so far? The south. And that's why the Ptolemies ruled Israel for a period of many, many years. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will repeat, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out with a, without will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he would advance with a huge army, fully equipped. In those times, many will arise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people. Now, who's his own people? Now you got the Jewish people here. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of this vision, but without success. That's a failed coup, so to speak. Then the king of the north will come and build siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, and he will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south, and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Now, have you ever heard of um, uh, drawing a line in the sand? 
That's where this comes from. What happened is, again, the north, the Seleucids, the Syrians, constantly were battling against the Ptolemies, the Egyptians. They battle all the time. And at some point, the north was becoming, the, the, the south was dominant for a, a period of almost a, a hundred years. And now the north started to invade them. The south was in trouble, and they called for the Romans to come and help them. The Romans came with ships to help the Egyptians, the, the Ptolemies, and down came the Syrians. And the Syrians wanted to, to defeat the Egyptians, and the Romans said, stop. And the Syrian leader said, I'll think about it. The Roman general took his, uh, his hand or a stick and drew a circle around the Seleucid general, uh, the Seleucid leader, the king, and said, you can, think, you can think about it, but once you get out of that circle, I'm killing you. And he made his decision real fast. We're going home. So do you think he was happy? No, he's furious. So what does a person do when you're angry? You kick the dog. So that's what he does. He kicks the dog. Who's the dog? The Jewish people. They're stuck in the middle. So here he was going to fight against the people of the south. The Romans step in, stop him, put a circle around him. He goes home furious and he kicks the dog. Who's the dog? Of course, the Jewish people, because they're the ones that are in the middle between the Syrians and the Egyptians. Now, who's the one who's going to kick the dog? This is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I'm going to start at verse 21. He will be succeeded. That's the one after the one who, who had to go back because of the Romans. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. So he didn't get it by legitimate means. He manipulated his way into power. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an, an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Again, the covenant. Now the Jewish people are in this. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers, and he will plot the overflow throw of fortresses, but only for a time. So now, this is Antiochus IV. He is now becoming a more and more successful leader, and he is doing so by means of intrigue, deceit, and military power. But of course, when you do that, you encounter resistance. So now the people of the South are going to start to resist him. Here's verse 25. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the South, and the king of the South will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots designed against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in the battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, this is interesting, their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. That's never happened before, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart 
will be set against the holy covenant, he will take action against it and then return to his own country. So now he has some kind of a peace agreement with the the Egyptians. He heads back to his own country. As he does so, he passes through the land of the covenant, Israel. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will appear to oppose him. That's what I talked about with the Romans, by the way. And he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So there will be people in Israel who will forsake their Jewishness and follow him for their own personal advantage. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up an abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And that's what's called the Maccabean revolt. So I'm sure you got all that, didn't you? (laughs) Um, Sorry if you didn't. Let me give you a little um, summary. Though tiny... The nation of Israel is enormously significant because of where it is located in the geography of the world. It was the prize that the people wanted between the power of the north and the power of the south. And as they fought against each other, they constantly fought their battles and took control of the land of Israel until the dominant power, the Syrians, the Seleucids, the Greeks in the north, came south, took over the land of Israel, and decided they were going to wreak havoc. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he decided he was going to force the Jewish people to become Greeks, not Jews. So what did he do? First of all, he got the control, he got the, uh, he got some of the Jewish leaders to compromise and follow him. Many of them did. Circumcision, The mark of being a Jew stopped. You were killed if you were circumcised. And believe it or not, they even had devised some means to reverse circumcisions. They stopped the sacrifices. They burned the copies of the law. They would not allow people to to, um, celebrate the Jewish festivals. And even worse, they were required to do obeisance to Antiochus on his birthday, to worship him on his birthday. Then he went into the Holy of Holies, established a a statue of Zeus, and started to offer pigs on the altar and required that the Jewish people sacrifice pigs to himself as their God. And some of the Jewish people started to do that until there was this little old man. His name was Matthias, who I mentioned before, in the town not far from Jerusalem called Moodin. And when they came with the Syrian general saying, these are what you're going to do, he killed the guy. In fact, he killed someone who was a Jewish who was following the Syrians' orders. And that, of course, began the war. Matthias died and his son, Judas Maccabeus, the hammerer, he took over a guerrilla warfare against the mighty Syrians. And over a period of years, they won. And when they won this war, they rededicated the temple. That's the start of Hanukkah. And then for a period of about 100 years, the Jewish people had independence under what's called the Chesmoneans. And so 
The first part of this passage that I just read to you, the prophet Daniel writing 200 years before, or more than 200 years before this took place, he was telling God's people, this is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. And then one day, this very evil man is going to take over your country. And some of you are going to fall prey to him. But if you're faithful, you will not. In fact, if you're faithful, you will not fall prey to this man. You will stand against this man. And when you stand against this man, you will probably get killed. But in doing so, you will set an example and you will teach others. And in fact, that's where we're going to pick up the action at verse um, 38 or 32. Those who are wise, remember what Antiochus did. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned, or captured, or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So there's Daniel's advice. This is what's coming. It's going to be horrible. Something's going to take place that is going to take the words in your vocabulary as Jewish people as the abomination of desolation. The worst thing you can ever imagine is going to happen to you, but this is what's going to happen. This is the pieces that will come in place before it happens, and this is how you respond when it happens. Don't capitulate. Don't compromise, though some of them will. Stand strong. Be the man. Be the woman. Take the persecution. And in so doing, you will instruct others and you will be purified yourself. That's the part that we now can look back on as history. And what came out of this? Well, someone said this. The mood of Daniel is grim. Note the emphasis on treachery, betrayal, strife, broken treaties, warfare, greed, hatred the use of marriage for political ends, assassinations, vengeance, destructiveness, and vindictiveness. All this represents the abuse of political and military power, reflecting kingdoms built upon the sinful and self-centered impulses of man living contrary to God's will and ways. What is noticeably absent from the lives of those portrayed in these verses is true inner peace and the love of God. That's not a pretty picture. Did you see all those words? Treachery, intrigue, violence. If we were in Ukraine right now, the Ukrainian people would probably be saying, yeah, we know exactly what that's like and what that means. But now, and this is where we're going to focus now, everything's going to change. Everything's going to change um, um, in, in, in verse 36. Um, because now it's going to turn to something that doesn't have any connection to history. And so the key here is that um, this has got to be still future. Again, what's God trying to do? God's trying to prepare his people, the Jewish people, and by, by extension, us as God's people, he's trying to prepare us for the future. He prepared the Jewish people for their first incredible catastrophe And now he's going to prepare God's people for their ultimate catastrophe, much worse than the first one. And that's where we're going to turn now. But what happened in between? As a result of what Antiochus did and the abomination 
it fomented the Jewish people to rise up and fight against them, and they won. They rededicated their temple, restoring the worship of God. They set up their own kingship for 100 years, from 165 B.C. to 63 B.C., when the Romans took over, and certain very important things happened that we hear about in the New Testament. The synagogue was formed. There were no synagogues before this. The Sadducees were formed. The Pharisees were formed. The rabbis became the spiritual teachers of Israel. All of this is new. And so all of those pieces were in place then when Jesus came on board some 150 years after the events that we just looked at. But now we're going to turn our attention to things that are yet future. How do we know their future? Well, because it talks about, Daniel talks about what's going to happen in the distant future. What is talked about here, there's not any connection to any of this in history that we know of. And so what's going to happen now is it's going to talk about things that are still in the future. And interestingly, when we go to the words of Jesus in Matthew and the words of John in Revelation, they completely correlate with what Daniel is going to tell us now. And now we're going to enter into not the time of the abomination of desolation, but now we're going to enter into the time that's called the tribulation. Here's the word of God. The king. What king? Well, you would obviously think the king it was just talking about, Antiochus IV. But this is something different, much worse. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. You see, Antiochus, he called himself, I am the exalted one. But he never focused the workers worshiping himself. By the way, they, his name was Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, the exalted one. The people called him Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, the madman. That was their name. They had a nickname for him, as we give nicknames to our presidents sometimes. You can think of some of them. Um, but here, this person, and remember, Antiochus IV did not draw worship to himself. He drew worship to Zeus, the Greek gods. But this one will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. Antiochus never did that. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no respect for the gods of his fathers. Even though he might have had a spiritual heritage, he will show no respect for that heritage, nor for the gods of his fathers, or for the one desired by woman. Now, what does that one mean? Well, there's suggestion among many people that this one who shows no regard for the god of his fathers is actually Jewish, like a Judas. And the great desire of, of Jewish women, even to this day, is that they could be the mother of the Messiah. He totally disregards any of that nonsense. Nor does he have any regard for any God, but exalts himself above all of them. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses. His God is military might a God unknown to his fathers, and he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God, 
and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute land at a price. So not only will he be militarily very, very, very powerful, he will be economically filthy rich, and he will use his riches to buy people's loyalty, and he will be extremely successful in what he does. But it doesn't end there. At that time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. Now we're back to the king of the south. Who's the king of the south? Well, earlier it was Egypt, and probably still here, it's Egypt. The powers of the south of Israel, Egypt and North Africa, maybe the Arabian people. And the king of the north, well, that was the Seleucids, that was the Greeks. But in Bible prophecy, the people of the north is probably Russia, Turkey, those countries will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. So he's militarily successful against many countries. He will invade even the beautiful land. There it is again, Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hands. Those are, that's Jordan, the country of Jordan today. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. That's North Africa. But reports from the east. Now we got the east coming in. Well, the south of Israel is Egypt and North Africa. The north is, is Turkey, Syria, Russia. The west, of course, is the water, the Mediterranean. What's in the east? Well, Iran, Afghanistan, China, that's the east. It's getting a little worse here. But reports from the east and the north. So the east and the north somehow have some kind of alignment and will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He, that's this king, will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. I think that's called Jerusalem. Yet he will come to his end, but no one will help him. Did you get that? If you're scratching your heads, so am I. What does it mean? Well, it seems like the Antichrist, first of all, is described. He loves himself. He's self-willed. He exalts himself. He's in a position of incredible authority. He faces basically no effective opposition. And rather than promote the gods of, of, of his ancestors, he promotes the godship of himself. He seeks to exalt himself above the gods of heaven. Does that ever sound familiar to you? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah describes one, speaking of the king of Tyre, like this. He said, you... You set in your you set in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the uttermost heights of Mount Zephon. I will descend to the tops of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high God. Who said that? Lucifer. That's Lucifer. And by the way, Lucifer's great ability, his greatest ability is to counterfeit God. So the Bible speaks about in the last times, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, will be counterfeited. Satan, Lucifer, will, be count, will counterfeit God, the Father. The Antichrist will counterfeit, or, or also called the beast, 
will counterfeit the Lord Jesus Christ and the false prophet will counterfeit the Holy Spirit, the unholy trinity. We can see where the power of this one comes from. It comes from Lucifer. This is First, Second Thessalonians back, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of the same thing. He, the Antichrist, opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the writing of Paul. This is the writing of John in Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. That's pretty high blasphemy. He will succeed. But eventually, though he's extremely powerful, extremely rich, extremely arrogant, he will run into opposition from where? From the south, from the north, from the east. And all will descend as he's taken up his, his capital in the holy city. And then he's defeated without a battle. Well, there's a battle. His forces against the, 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 the armies of the south and the north and the east. But he's ultimately destroyed by a king of kings who's going to descend and come again and wipe them out and establish a kingdom that will last forever. Well, okay, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> what are you going to take home today besides uh, a scratched head? For number one, God knows history in perfect detail. He has an incredible and amazing historical algorithm that is being played out every single minute of every single day. He has a game plan that he's working out with incredible precision. We saw it at work when Jesus, when, when he told exactly what would happen to the Jewish people at the time of Antiochus. We saw what would happen when he told about the coming of Jesus in Daniel chapter 9. And we have every reason to expect that it will be just as precise with events that come in the future. God, in his infinite wisdom, reveals facts about the future to his people. Some of the facts, but not all of the facts. Enough so that we can have our confidence fully rested in him, but not enough so that we could set dates. We can never do that. This is what Bible, the Bible says in Amos chapter 3. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Daniel is trying to tell us what's going to still happen in the future. We live in a fallen world. It's ruled by the prince of the power of the air. We know that. And so the abuse of power is going to be something that we have to deal with for all of our days. And so what's coming in the future? Let me summarize it as we conclude. The Bible says that we're living right now in what's called the last days. The last days are not just before the end because the last days began when Jesus left this world and they will end when he returns. So we're living in the last days. The major characteristic of the last days is love. That's the number one characteristic of the last days is love. How do I know that? Because that's what God's word says. It says, in the last day, men will be lovers. You didn't say of what? <laughs> lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
without love, not lovers of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The major characteristic of the last days will be love, love for the wrong things. That's where we're living today. At some point in human history, the deception and the persecution of God's people, probably Jewish people, God's people, his chosen people, and we, the grafted in ones, Christians, will increase. Deception is probably the hallmark of our world right now. You don't know what to believe and who to trust. Deception and persecution. And then at some point, one who will be the Antichrist, much worse than Antiochus IV, who is the the precursor to the Antichrist, will, will arise and do all the things we've spoken about. At some point in human history, a period of time that's limited to seven years will kick in and what's called the tribulation will begin. But interestingly, it will begin with a covenant, a peace treaty, or some guarantee to follow the mosaic pattern in the nation of Israel and even probably to rebuild the temple and resume the sacrifices. That would get a lot of Jewish people on board. That will be initiated by not a good person, but a very evil person who's very deceitful, manipulating. In the middle of that period of time called the tribulation, he will break this covenant And then the abomination, something so abominable, Jewish people can't even imagine it, nor could we, will happen like Antiochus did by erecting the statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrificing pigs on the altars. Israel then will no longer be protected, but be persecuted in ways that are unbelievable. But God will raise up a witness for himself among the Jewish people and Jewish people in large numbers at great price will recognize the one whom they have pierced as their Messiah. When that happens, these various powers from the south, the north, and the east will gather together at a place called Armageddon, Har Megiddo, that famous battlefield in Israel. And the battle will take place. And then that for which we've all been waiting, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will return and he will set up a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years called the millennium. And then the new heaven and the new earth. So how do we live in light of this? We're living in between the time of all the Antiochus nonsense and the future yet to come. How do we live? Number one, this is Peter, the apostle Peter. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That's what Peter said. Live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. We should diligently seek to spread the good news. Peter again said, why is God waiting? Why doesn't he get on with it? Because God is not willing that anyone should perish. He wants everyone to have a chance to hear the gospel. That's why. And who are we? We're his ambassadors. That's what we do during the meantime. Daniel 11 screams that God knows the future, but we don't need to fear it. Why? Because he's got the whole world in his hands. And this is what Paul wrote in Titus. For the grace of God appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us all to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, who are eager to do what is good. That's what we are doing. We're people here who spend our lives eager to do what is good. Martin Luther once was asked about his daytimer. <laughs> he didn't have a daytimer, but his calendar. He says, oh, I only have two dates on my calendar, this day and that day. So that's all I think about. Because all we really have is we have this day and that day. We have this day to follow Jesus. And we have that day to look forward to when he comes again. So Daniel 11 is a passage of preparation, a passage of warning, a passage of makes you scared. But ultimately, it's a passage that shouts that God is sovereign and he takes care of his people, not painlessly. No, that's not a promise of his. But triumphantly, yes, by all means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. How you could be so incredibly accurate is beyond our belief. We can't imagine anything with our human minds that could so perfectly peg the future. But you've done it over and over again. We know you're accurate. We pray that you'd give us increasing confidence in your word, increasing love for the Lord Jesus Christ, increasing reliance on the Holy Spirit, increasing love for people all around us who don't know Jesus, and that we would be thrilled to live good lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.